Well, our daily bread for this morning is Joshua chapter 8. Can we turn, please, to Joshua chapter 8 as we continue our journey through this book of the Bible? Okay, starting off with verses 1 and 2, we read, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. Take all the people of war with you and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given it into your hand, the king of Ai, his people, his city and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its cattle you shall take as booty for yourselves. Lay an ambush for the city behind it. Well, the nation of Israel and uh, its commander Joshua had suffered a humiliating defeat at the hands of Ai and its army. They, uh, the national morale was at a low and uh, I guess Joshua's approval rating had no doubt taken a hit in the process. Of course, they had mounted attack with only 3,000 troops, full of confidence that after the victory in Jericho, I was a sure uh, done deal. But uh, Israel fled from the armies of Ai and 36 men died in the process. And we saw that the source of the defeat was not due to military strength, not through a poor strategy, but because there was sin in the camp, namely the sin of Achan. And uh, Joshua himself was not exempt from culpability either. I mean, if he'd only sought the Lord, then the sin would have been exposed prior to an attack being made. And uh, Joshua, as much as Achan's failure to seek God, reached, uh, resulted in the death of six, uh, 36 men, as I already said. And who among us has never faced defeat and discouragement in their life? Who uh, among us has never been humiliated and found them placed in the, uh, themselves in the place of fear? Who among us has never felt guilt and been demoralised? And to some degree, I think this was the sense within the camp of Israel. And what is the right response when you are facing a sense of defeat, a sense of discouragement, when you feel fearful and demoralised? Well, let me tell you, it is number one, not, not to wallow and continually think about your mistakes. And that's a natural inclination when things haven't gone your way to, to start to wallow and to think over your mistakes, to replay the scenario in your mind. That will only drag you further and further under. And something else that you don't do is to give up and reckon, well, it was a bad idea in the first place. We don't give up when we fate for when we face discouragement and we're demoralized and defeated. And interestingly enough, um, if we were to go back to Joshua chapter seven, these were both the knee jerk reactions of Joshua. Uh, we read in jo Joshua seven, verse 10. So the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why do you lie thus in your face? Now, God wouldn't be saying to Joshua, get up if he wasn't wallowing in his mistakes and in verse uh, 7 of Joshua 7 uh, God says oh no so Joshua said oh that we had been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan his knee-jerk reaction was also to give up and say well it was a bad idea in the first place but these are reactions in the flesh not a reaction in the spirit really the right response when we face 
discouragement and uh, we're demoralised, we're defeated, is first of all, make sure that you've repented of any unconfessed sin. If you have been wallowing, if you have had that desire to just give up, repent of that so that there is no lingering sin within you. Second of all, you need to spend time in the presence of God. You need to spend time in his word. You need to spend time in prayer. You need to stir up that faith within you again. You need to turn your eyes off of your circumstance and situation and you lift your eyes upon the Lord. Effectively, we need to gain victory in the Lord before we can gain victory over our circumstances in our life. You know, I've I've got a friend who he's been a friend of mine since school. He's a Christian and he faced defeat in his Christian life. Um, I'm not exactly sure when, probably about 10 years ago. And he is still wallowing in that defeat. He is still in that place where he has essentially given up. And it is just horrible to see that he is not spending any time with Lord. And he is uh, he's not. He's not confessing um, the, the sin of the past. And so he's stopped moving forward. He is living in that place of defeat. And God doesn't want us to remain in defeat. He doesn't want us to be demoralised. He wants to shake us out of that. And he wants to take us forward. There is always a step forward to be taken in our walk with God. And as I said, it starts by spending time with the Lord. And when we read verse one, this is clearly what Joshua has been doing, because we read there. Then the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid nor dismay. Take all the people of war with you and arise, go up to Ai. You know, Joshua wouldn't be hearing the voice of the Lord if he was not spending time with the Lord. And how sweet it must have been to hear the voice of the Lord after all that had happened with I formerly. After a crushing defeat, to start hearing the voice of the Lord, it must have been a relief. It must have been water to his spirit. And what does the Lord say? Do not be afraid. Do not be uh, uh, dismayed. These are words of restoration. These are words of comfort. And these are words that we all need to hear from time to time from the Lord. Don't be afraid. Do not be dismayed. I am with you. You know, I was uh, listening to a talk earlier this week and I was reminded and uh, of something in Exodus 33. In Exodus 33, we read about Moses and his habit. Uh, reading in verse seven, it says Moses took his tent and pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp and called it the tabernacle of meeting. And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp. So it was whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle that all the people rose and each man stood at his tent door and watched Moses until he had gone into the tabernacle. And it came to pass when Moses entered the tabernacle that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle and the Lord talked with Moses. All the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door and all the people rose and worshipped, each man in his tent door. And so the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend and he would return to the camp but his servant Joshua the son of Nun a young man did not depart from the tabernacle. Here was a tent specifically set aside where Moses could meet 
and talk with the Lord. It was set outside the camp and Moses went regularly there to commune with the Lord to talk to him face to face. There Moses received instruction. There Moses communed with the Lord. There Moses was encouraged. And we all need to have a tent of meeting, a place where we can be alone with the Lord, a place where we can be fed, a place where we can be encouraged, a place where we can be restored, a place where we can be built up with the Lord. You know, the bedrock of your faith should not be church. It should not be the teaching that you receive on a Sunday morning or a Monday evening. It should not be the fellowship that we share as believers among one another. And it should not be the worship that Hannah and Johnny lead us in. The bedrock of your faith should be the time you spend alone with the Lord. That's where you will draw close to him. That is where God will speak to you personally like no man can speak. That's where he will equip you like no sermon will equip you. That is where he will impress upon you his character and you'll undergo transformation and be made into his likeness. We need to have a tent of meeting. We need to have a place where we can withdraw to. We need to have a, a, a time alone with the Lord where we can be built up in our faith. That is the bedrock of your faith, that personal devotional time with the Lord. And it's from the overflow of the time that you spend with your Lord that your ministry will spring. It is from the overflow of the time that you spend with the Lord and all that the Lord pours into your life in that time that your ministry will spring. And Joshua was an eyewitness of that time that Moses spent in that tabernacle of meeting. And so Joshua knew all too well that his ministry came from the overflow of the time he spent with the Lord. And so what we see here is that from the presence of the Lord, Joshua received words of encouragement and words of direction. God said, take all the people of war with you and rise and go up to Ai. He finally had a command from the Lord about that it was time to att uh, attack Ai. And time spent with the Lord will always result in encouragement and direction. If you're feeling discouraged, if you're looking for direction, spend time alone with the Lord. So not only were words of direction given to Joshua, but words of victory accompanied them as well. We read there uh, for, um, see, I have given into your hand the king of Ai, his people, his city and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. The Lord promised a victory to Joshua and Israel. And the victory was not dependent solely upon the word of God's promise. That word needed to be mingled with faith to become effective. God's word needs to be mingled with faith for it to become effective. It is no good God making a promise and you saying, well, that's good. That's great. It needs to be mingled with our faith and that faith will give birth to action in our life. It says in Hebrews 4 verse 2, For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. He, the writer of Hebrews is talking about the gospel being preached, but because it was not met with faith, it had no effect in the person's life. God is speaking 
And when you hear his voice, it needs to be met with faith for it to have an effect in your life. And Joshua meets the words of God with faith. And we can see that borne out in what follows afterwards. There are precious promises available for all of us to claim in Scripture. Promises of victory, promises of reward. But they can only be claimed if they are received with and mingled with faith. So Joshua and Israel uh, are uh, guided to attack. uh, Well, when Joshua, sorry, I'm falling over my words here. When Joshua and Israel attacked Jericho, the Lord gave them a very clear strategy. And the Lord does the same thing again with I. He gives them a very clear strategy. And you see that at the end of verse two, where it says, uh, where it says, lay an ambush for the city behind it. That is going to be the key of their success. They lay an ambush. So it's going to be a two pronged attack. You're going to have a frontal assault to draw the men of I out. And you're going to have an ambush from behind to cut them off and surround them. And that will become more clear as we carry on. But I think what is important for us to know is the Lord has a new and a different battle strategy for I in contrast to Jericho. And in every fresh battle we face in our walk with the Lord, we need to have God's strategy for dealing with that battle. We can't apply the techniques and the strategies of yesterday to the battles of today we need God's guidance in every new day you know if if Joshua started to use the same strategy for Jericho i.e marching around uh, seven days and then blowing trumpets they wouldn't have met with success and that type of thinking is uh, a theology based upon experience it worked that way that yeah that way so we're going to use that way today and experience led theology is very dangerous forming an idea of what you believe based upon experience what you believe should be based upon what God says and you need a fresh word every day to be able to guide you and it's interesting the contrast between the strategy employed for Jericho and the strategy that is employed for I Jericho began with an open march in daylight I will begin with a covert operation at night. Jericho involved a united army. I will involve a divided army. The army of Israel will be split in two. And Jericho ended with a supernatural miracle with the walls coming down, but I will end with a natural act of might with the armies of Israel closing in and killing all the people of I. But we read also in uh, voice verse two, the other contrast is only its spoil and its cattle you shall take as booty for yourselves. So again, in contrast to Jericho, the spoils of war could be claimed to I, whereas at Jericho, the spoils of war, to be, of war were to be considered consecrated to the Lord. And this is because the first fruits always belong to the Lord. The Lord is always to have the best and the first fruits were always to be the best. But now I would be the next battle on from Jericho. And so they could take all the booty. They could take all the riches from I. And you can't help but think if only Achan had waited a week or two, he could have had all the riches his arms could have held. 
and uh, he would not have had to hide it or forfeit his life. And sometimes we have to forfeit what we want to acknowledge the Lord's place and authority in our life. And only once we have acknowledges, acknowledged the Lord's place and authority in our life will he grant us what we desire. He will grant our heart's desire once those hearts are fully yielded to him. So let's read on and look at this military campaign a little bit more from verse three. So Joshua arose and all the people of war to go up against Ai. And Joshua chose 30,000 men of valour and sent them away by night. And he commanded them, saying, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind the city. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you be ready. Then I and all the people who are with me will approach the city, and it will come about when they come out against us as at the first, that we shall flee before them. For they will come out after us till we have drawn them from the city. For they will say, They are fleeing before us as at the first. Therefore we will flee before them. Then you shall arise from the ambush and seize the city. For the Lord your God will deliver it into your hand. And it will be when you have taken the city that you shall set the city on fire. According to the commandment of the Lord you shall do. See, I have commanded you. Let's see if we can make sense of this. The Lord gave Joshua the basic military strategy, but Joshua, being a seasoned commander, was well able to plan the specifics. He mustered a force of 30,000 mighty men of valour, which was 10 times the previous fighting force of 3,000 that had gone up to Ai and been defeated. And he began by splitting the army into two military units. Now, the first military unit I'm going to call the Ambush Division and the second military uh, unit we're going to call the Decoy Division. And the, e and the Ambush Division comprised of 5,000 mighty men of valour. They were like a crack squad, an SAS unit. And there to go on night manoeuvres to the far side of the city of Ai onto the west. And there they were to hide and lie in wait for the command of Joshua. The remaining uh, 25,000 mighty men of valour were to become the decoy division. They would position themselves north of Ai and the plan was to draw the emboldened army of Ai from the city to fight. The decoy division would then flee, giving the effect of defeat like they did last time. And this would draw the armies of Ai further from the city as they pursued, leaving the city open, abandoned and vulnerable. Then the ambush division, uh, at the appropriate moment, Joshua would raise a signal to those 5,000 mighty men, at which point they would rise from their hiding place, seize the city, set it on fire, at which point the armies of Ai would have no place to flee and could be totally routed. Now, I think it's important that we understand that. So what I'm going to do... Um, let me see, is I'm going to draw this for you. OK, can you all see that? The whiteboard? Great. OK, so let's just say we've got a city there. We've got a city there. We've got a city there. And we've got a city there. And we've got a long line there. OK, so. That's Bethel. 
that's I. This is going to really help people that are listening online. Uh, and this here is Jericho. And this here is Jordan. Can you all see that okay? Right. So, what's going to happen is, Joshua, this is the base of operations for Israel, Gilgal. Joshua's going to send out the 5,000 and they're going to position themselves somewhere to the west of Ai. Okay, so this is the 5,000 there. Then what he's going to do with the 25,000 is they're going to come out and they're going to come to the north of Ai. Okay. Then what will happen is the men of Ai will come out to face the children of Israel, ignorant of this 5,000 hidden here. But what will also happen is there'll be an army that joins them from Bethel as well, at which point Israel will flee. And these combined forces will pursue them. Okay, now once this, once the combined force of Bethel and I have fled sufficiently from I, the people from the ambush will come in to the city of I. And what they'll do is they'll set it ablaze. And at some point, these people from I and Bethel will realise that I is burning and they'll be stopped dead in their tracks. Then Israel will turn about and close in and an attack upon this confederacy of I and Bethel soldiers. And they will not have anywhere to treat because this ambushing force of 5,000 will then leave the city and close in from the other side. So that the army of I will be hit from both the west and the east and they'll have nowhere to run. I hope that makes it clear as to what will happen that drawing is not to scale. Okay then, so let's carry on. <clears throat> We've got this decoy division ready and we read in Joshua 8 verse 9. Joshua therefore sent them out and they went to lie in ambush and stayed between Bethel and Ai on the west side of Ai. But Joshua lodged that night among the people. So the ambush division has been dispatched. They're lying in wait, sleeping in the open, and Joshua spends the night in Gilgal with the camp of Israel. Reading on in verses 10 and 11, we, we see, Then Joshua rose up early in the morning and mustered the people, and went up, he and the elders of Israel, before the people of Ai, to Ai. And all the people of war who were with him went up and drew near, and they came before the city and camped on the north side of Ai, now there was a valley between them and I. So early morning, Joshua musters his army and the uh, decoy division travelled to the north of I and set up camp in full view of I. But there is a natural defence between I and the armies of Israel and that's a valley. And so we carry on. Verse 12. So he took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and I on the west side of the city and when they had placed the people, all the army that was on the north of the city and its rear guard on the west of the city, Joshua went that night into the midst of the valley. 
So this is a further clarification, uh, summarization of the action Joshua took. And it's from here that we learn that this ambush division was uh, amounted to 5,000 men, whilst the majority of the army were stationed north of Ai with this valley that separated them. And that evening, with the troops in position, Joshua explores the valley that separates Israel and I. And this seems to be a pattern of Joshua's behaviour. You might recall he explored the ground outside Jericho before commencing that campaign. And it was during that exploration of that land outside Jericho that, the Lord, that Joshua encountered the commander of the Lord's armies. Now, why Joshua does this before a battle, uh, I'm not totally clear as to why. Perhaps he is familiarising himself with the geography of the land before the battle, so he knows the terrain. Perhaps he is just simply clearing his head, replaying the battle strategy in his head, uh, a bit like a chess player contemplating eight moves ahead to make sure that everything is properly organised. Or maybe he's taking time to be alone with the Lord, one more time before the heat of battle begins. Either way, he's being alone in this valley. And so we come to the response of the king of Ai, verse 14. Now it happened when the king of Ai uh, saw it, that the men of the city hastened and rose early and went out against Israel to battle, he and all his people at an appointed place before the plain. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel made as if they were beaten before them and fled by the way of the wilderness. So all the people who were in Ai were called together to pursue them. And they pursued Joshua and were drawn away from the city. There was not a man left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. So they left the city open and pursued Israel. So we see here that the king of Ai is in no doubt energised by his initial victory over Israel. And so he does not hesitate to launch a second attack against the Hebrew aggressors. His confidence and enthusiasm blind him to the hidden threat. If he had the poise that Joshua had, taken the time the night before to walk the land and consider his stratagem, if he had sent out scouts to make a report of the threat, the ambush division may well have been uncovered. But he did not. And just as the God of this world has blinded the minds of those who are perishing, so the mind of the king of Ai was blinded so that he would be among those who were perishing. And upon seeing the army of Ai emerge, Joshua and company make as if defeated and flee. They run away. And uh, the only, this only encourages the people of Ai to pursue. And much in the same way that Pharaoh and his armies were encouraged to pursue, pursue Israel through the Red Sea, like Egypt before, I will be rooted, routed as a result. And it is now that it becomes clear that a confederacy exists between I and Bethel, and the army of Bethel joins in the pursuit of Israel. However, Joshua is not deterred from his strategy, nor is he distracted into taking Bethel as well. He maintains the goal of taking I and I alone. And oftentimes the enemy will multiply his forces against you and you'll face a greater battle than you first thought. But don't let that distract you or deter you. We need to be remain focused on the battle the Lord has put before us and on the strategy that the God has given us. Our victory is guaranteed, no matter what the enemy might throw at us. 
and I is left open and exposed and not a single man remains in the city to defend it. And so we read in verses 18 and 19. Then the Lord said to Joshua, stretch out the spear that is in your hand towards I, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the spear that he had in his hand towards the city. So those in ambush arose quickly out of their place. They ran as soon as he had stretched out his hand and they entered the city and took it and hastened to set the city on fire. Within this conflict, it is easy to start to think that Joshua is the mastermind behind everything. But that is not the case. The Lord is in charge. And we see that here in verse 18. Then the Lord said to Joshua, stretch out the spear that is in your hand towards I, for I will give it into your hand. It is the Lord who now speaks to Joshua and tells him to send the signal to the ambush division, which are in hiding and saying, right, now's the time to to attack. And of course, dutifully, Joshua raises his spear, the agreed sign that the ambush is to begin. This reminds me of Psalm 37, verse 23, where it says, the steps of a warrior are ordered by the Lord. And here, most definitely, the steps of this warrior, Joshua, are ordered by the Lord. And our steps as warriors for Jesus Christ need to also be ordered by the Lord. The 5,000 mighty men of valour in hiding rise quickly and they storm the city of Ai, meeting no resistance en route, and they quickly set it on fire and the smoke begins to rise. Then we read in verse 20. And when the men of Ai looked behind them, they saw and behold, the smoke of the city ascended to heaven. So they had no power to flee this way or that way. And the people who had fled to the wilderness turned back on the pursuers. And now when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had taken the city and that the smoke of the city ascended, they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. Then the others came out of the city against them. So they were caught in the midst of Israel, some on this side, some on that side, and they struck them down so that they let none of them remain or escape. The rising smoke was soon seen by both Israel and I, and for one it spelled victory, and for the other it spelled defeat. For the men of I, as swiftly as their heads turned to see their home ablaze, so their hearts turned to a place of utter failure and loss of power. They were utterly demoralised. It's as if they stopped in their tracks and in a split second they realised they'd been fooled and knowing in a split second all hope was gone. As for the men of Israel, their hearts remained steadfast, having been fortified by the Lord, having been led by the Lord every step of the way. Their army turned from running east to face west and began to rout I. And what's more, the ambush division left the city and closed in from the west. And the men of Ai were trapped with Israel either side. And every last man was struck down. Nobody escaped. Then in verse 23 we read, But the king of Ai they took alive and brought him to Joshua. And it came to pass when Israel had made an end of slaying all the inhabitants of Ai in the field in the wilderness where they pursued them. And when they had all fallen by the edge of the sword until they were consumed, that all the Israelites returned to Ai and struck it with the edge of the sword. And so it was that all who fell that day, both men and women, were twelve thousand, all the people of Ai. For Joshua did not draw back his hand 
with which he stretched out the spear until he had utterly destroyed all the inhabitants of Ai. Only the livestock and the spoil of that city Israel took as booty for themselves, according to the word of the Lord, which he had commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it a heap forever, a desolation to this day. And the king of Ai he hanged on a tree until evening. And as soon as the sun was down, Joshua commanded that they should take his corpse down from the tree, cast it at the entrance of the gate of the city, and raise over it a great heap of stones that remains to this day. So once all the men in the field had been uh, wiped out, Israel returned to the city to wipe out all the inhabitants. 12,000 souls perished that day at the hands of Israel. And it would appear that Joshua, having raised aloft his spear to mark the beginning of the ambush from the 5,000 in hiding, continued to keep the spear aloft as a sign to keep fighting until he withdrew it. The thing is, he did not withdraw the spear, so the fighting continued until everybody was dead. Now, this is reminiscent of Israel's battle with the Amalekites under Moses' leadership. You may remember that Moses, Aaron and Hur scaled a hill to overlook the battle and Moses held aloft the rod of God. And all the while the rod was held up, Israel prevailed. But when Moses' arms weakened, Amalek prevailed. And so Aaron and Hur helped keep Moses' arms upright so Israel secured victory. And in that battle, Joshua was leading the armies of Israel in a battle against Amalek. And I wonder whether this came to his mind during this conflict. It would be easy to think on this bloodbath and say it is revenge for the 36 Israelites who had been slain, disproportionate as that would be. However, that would be wrong. This is not revenge. This is the judgment of God on a wicked people. The people of Ai had had time to repent, but they did not. Matthew Henry says, God, the righteous judge, had passed the sentence upon them for their wickedness, so that the Israelites were only the ministers of his justice and the executioners of his doom. You know, some look on hell as a disproportionate judgment on unbelievers, but it is not. Those who are cast into the lake of fire do so at their own hand. Everyone has an opportunity to repent and to turn to the Lord and escape judgment. It's, it's a fallen man's lack of appreciation of the holiness of God and of the depravity of their sin that misleads their perception of God's justice on this point. Our God is a righteous and a just God and any judgment that he executes is fair. The king of Ai, of course, is taken alive and brought before Joshua. And we're not told explicitly here how he was ex executed. Perhaps he was stoned. Perhaps he was uh, killed by the sword. But we do know that he was hanged on a tree. Now, the fact that he was hanged on a tree is not to refer that he was he was killed by hanging. That is not the way he would have been um, killed. This was an act of obedience to the law of God. Uh, Deuteronomy 21, uh, reading from verse 22, says, If a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day, so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. So we see here that the king of Ai is killed. He's hung, hanged on the tree to the end of the day. Then he's taken down and he's buried at the entrance to what was I, 
with stones. Even in the death of the enemies of God, there was to be respect and dignity given to the body. And of course, this set Israel apart from the foreign nations that surrounded them, who would often leave their dead to be eaten by scavengers and to rot on stakes and other such depravities. So the children of Israel took the livestock and the possessions of Ai as booty, according to the word of the Lord, and the obedience and the faithfulness of Israel brought them great reward and riches. And we, as the children of God, will also be rewarded for our obedience and faithfulness too. Now you may legitimately ask, what of Bethel? They seem to join in the battle. Were they utterly routed as well? Well, we assume that their army was defeated with the army of Ai, but it doesn't look like the city was taken at this point. But in Joshua chapter 12, we read about a list of kings that uh, uh, Joshua and um, Israel defeated and conquered. In verse 9, we read the king of Jericho, the king of Ai, uh, were both taken and defeated. But then later on in verse 16, we read the king of Bethel was taken. So the king of Bethel was defeated and the city of Bethel was taken, but it seemed to have appeared later on in the campaign into Canaan. Bethel still had its defeat awaiting them. So we turn to the last five verses of our chapter this morning. And uh, the closing events of this chapter occurred some time after the victory at Ai. Joshua had led the children of Israel some 30 miles north to Shechem and to a valley that lies between two mountains, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And here Israel is rededicated to the Lord. Let's read verse 30. Now Joshua built an altar to the Lord God of Israel in Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the children of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of whole stones over which no man has wielded any iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the children of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. It's a glorious thing to be in a place of victory. However, if you have won that victory in the shadow of recent defeat, I think you are uh, more accurately or more acutely aware that it is the Lord that has given you that victory. And as such, the humble heart wants to acknowledge the Lord's hand in that victory. And so it is that Joshua builds an altar on the nearby Mount Ebal in accordance with Moses' instructions, and there he offers both burnt offerings and peace offerings. Of course, the first burnt offering in Scripture was on Mount Moriah, when Abraham followed God's instruction to sacrifice his son Isaac. And of course, the Lord intervened at the crucial moment and provided a ram, a foreshadowing of the father sacrificing his son, Jesus Christ. The burnt offering was later codified in the Mosaic law in Leviticus 1. And the offering had to be of a male animal and the entire animal would be consumed by fire. It was the most common sacrifice in Israel and uh, it was sometimes offered as a time of cleansing, but it was usually offered to make atonement for people's sin. And so this burnt offering, these burnt offerings that were offered on Mount Ebal are a sacrifice for Israel's sin and it is a sacrifice of cleansing. Really, it is a sacrifice of rededication. But also peace offerings were offered and these were codified in Leviticus 3. And the, sacrifice, the peace offering sacrifice would be, could be of either a male or a female animal. 
and only part of that animal was burned. Part of the flesh of the animal was given to the person to eat. And so it symbolised a meal between God and men, because part of it was consumed for the Lord and part of it was eaten by the people. And in some translations, peace offering is translated fellowship offering. And in some respects, that's a better translation because that's what it was communicating. Fellowship between God and man. It was an offering by May, uh, made by way of thanksgiving, sometimes as a vow. And, but it was, it was voluntary and it illustrated a heart devoted to the Lord. And so Joshua is offering these sacrifices on Mount Ebal as, as a time of rededication to God. As, a, as an act of devotion towards God, not only for himself, but the whole nation of Israel. It's acknowledging that the victory was due to the Lord, not themselves. It is atoning for their sin, but it's also bringing the people together with God as a time of fellowship. And Joshua also wrote out a copy of the law of Moses on stone. Now, this is not a hammer and chisel affair where he's trying to carve out each word. What it would have been is uh, wet clay tablets, which which would have been written into. Then they would have hardened, perhaps even fired to make actually absolutely rock hard. And uh, this is an interesting act because each new king of Israel was obligated by law to write out a copy of the law after their coronation. And for that king, it was an act of devotion and dedication, uh, symbolising a time of new beginnings. And really, that seems to be very similar to what is happening here. Joshua is saying, we broke your law through Achan's sin. Now we are rededicating ourselves to you, Lord. This is a new beginning. And that new beginning has been marked by this victory over I. And for us, whenever we need a new beginning, it always starts by us coming back to the word of God. And so finally, we read the last three verses. Then all Israel with their elders and the officers and judges stood on either side of the ark before the priests. The Levites who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord, the stranger as well as he who was born among them. Half of them were in the front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, as Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded before, that they should bless the people of Israel. And afterwards he read all the words of the law, the blessings and the cursings, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the congregation of Israel, with the women, the little ones, and the strangers who were living among them. This action is in obedience to a command that Moses had uh, given and was recorded in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. Joshua would read the entire law of Moses. And these are the statutes and the covenant uh, about the covenant relationship between God and Israel. Half the nation stood on Mount Gerizim, the tribes of Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph and Benjamin. And they declared the blessings for obedience to the covenant law. And half the nation would stand on Mount Ebal, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan and Naphtali. And they declared the cursings for disobedience to the covenant law. And typically, when a covenant was cut between two parties, an animal was divided in two. And those making the covenant would declare the terms of the covenant, including the blessings and curses. And then the parties would walk through the divided animal. 
But in this instance, it is the nation that is divided into two mountains, uh, on the two mountains, and the terms of the covenant are read. And the curses that would fall upon Israel um, for disobedience to the covenant actually formed five cycles, five separate cycles of disobedience. And a cycle of discipline would fall on Israel for not observing the terms of the covenant. And if this discipline did not lead to repentance, a second cycle would be initiated by God. The fifth and final cycle of discipline would uh, see Israel cast out of the land and dispersed among the nations. And this has happened twice in the history of Israel, of course. Israel was invaded and expelled into captivity under the Babylonians. And later on, after restoration, Israel was invaded by Rome and then expelled from the land. And this was in fulfilment of the covenant terms that were laid down on Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal on this very occasion spoken of here in Joshua. They bound themselves to the Lord through his covenant and by um, making these vows on this day. Now, my last, my very last verse for the uh, this morning is from Deuteronomy 30 verses 1 to 3. And this was a final promise given in light of these curses and blessings. And it says this. Now it shall come to pass when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice according to all that I command you today, you and your children, with all your heart and with all your soul, that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. I consider it to be hugely significant that Israel returned to the land of Israel in 1948. A return to the land indicates a return to the Lord. And there is a rising number of Jewish people who are putting their faith in Jesus Christ as their saviour. The Jewish people being back in the land really is one of the prerequisites for the return of Jesus Christ. When uh, the earth, uh, when the church is removed, is caught up at the rapture, um, the Antichrist will be revealed and he will make a seven year treaty with the people of Israel. And for, for the Antichrist to be able to make that treaty with the people of Israel, Israel needs to be back in the land. So what God is doing is setting up the pieces of the puzzle. What God is saying is, Jesus is coming soon. You see, the Lord God always desires restoration or fellowship with his people. He wanted restoration or fellowship with his people back in the day of Joshua after the, the sin of Achan. God wants restoration with us after we sin and fall and make mistakes. And God still wants restoration with his children Israel today. And that restoration process is at its beginning. The Lord wants to be restored to you, for you to put your sin behind you, to look to the sacrifice of Jesus and to rededicate your life to him, just as Israel rededicated themselves to the Lord at Mount Gerizim and Ebal. Let us learn the lesson of victory. Let us learn the lesson of rededication this morning. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for that which we have read in your word this morning. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to properly understand all that occurs in this chapter 
and also to understand how it relates to us and our walk with you. Help us to be people that walk in victory, following the strategy that you have laid out before us, and help us to be wholly devoted and dedicated to you, Lord, walking in the light of your commands. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.